History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Derek Krisoff, director of the West Virginia University Press. Derek Krisoff, welcome to Working History. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's start off by talking briefly about the place of academic publishing in the context of publishing writ large. And I'm, I'm asking this question more for sort of non-specialists, people who haven't perhaps been working with or, or even have read, you know, uh, academic imprints. What do academic presses do first of all, sort of the Cliff Notes version. And what do you see as an academic press's most important function in this bigger picture? Sure. Well, academic press is actually um, a, a category that I would divide into two subcategories. So there are there are for-profit commercial academic presses, and they tend to be more focused on journals and maybe textbooks and a lot of the STEM fields. But these would be, you know, the, the Roman and Littlefields, Taylor and Francis's Routledges, um, you know, Reed Elsevier's of the world. Um, and they, you know, they they are publishing mostly faculty, uh, but they're in it for the money. The, the other cat, subcategory of academic publishers, and the one that I'm more familiar with and is probably more relevant for most of your listeners would be university presses. University presses, I mean, there's some overlap in our mission, but when it comes to um, single authored books by people in the humanities and social sciences, often called monographs, the bulk of those are going to be coming from university presses, not from commercial scholarly presses. University presses, unlike commercial presses, are not for profit. And we're part of the universities that are in our name. So West Virginia University Press is part of West Virginia University. By extension, because that's a public university, we're part of the state of West Virginia. Um, and the idea is, you know, we publish, we, we are in the marketplace. We, unlike most parts of a university, we have some cost recovery built into what we do. We charge for most of what we publish. Um, but our decisions are not meant to be um, dictated primarily by the market. So we're not, we're not making our decisions about what to publish principally on the basis of whether it's likely to sell well and, and make a lot of money. That's in the mix, but it's not supposed to be the, the, the primary orientation. When it comes to our decision making, we're supposed to be more oriented around um, publishing stuff that's, that's an important contribution to the scholarly fields in which we publish stuff that the university would be you know, proud to have its name attached to, stuff that's, that's an important part of the sort of scholarly communications um, network that we're, that we're part of. And we receive a small, most of us receive a small subsidy, generally pretty small, from the university that we're attached to. And, and the idea behind that is that we don't have to recover all of our costs. That, that's part of what allows us to be, um, to be, to, to factor in things besides the likelihood of making money when we determine what we're going to publish and how we're going to publish it. From the university standpoint, the advantage to them of having University Press, the primary one, would be it's a way to project outward into the world the name and reputation of, of the university. So that if you're seeing the West Virginia University name on the spine of books at bookstores or in published book reviews or when you cruise the exhibit hall at the big conferences, that's a way to sort of get the WVU name out there that only university presses are, are able to achieve. So lots of universities don't have a university press. What the universities that have university presses have going for them, I think, is that ability to sort of to project outward the reputation, name, and strength of the university. So that's kind of how the university press end of academic publishing works. And I think the primary contribution we make is that we're making available uh, work that contributes to the big scholarly debates 
of our day, and we're doing it in a way that you couldn't do it. We're adding all sorts of bells and whistles to it that we can talk about later in the conversation that you couldn't do if you were simply self-publishing, if you're just taking your own work and, and posting it to the web. How is the process of publishing a monograph with an academic or university press um, different from, say, publishing a novel with a popular press in terms of, you know, you talked about sort of the, the, the financial considerations of it are sort of um, tamped down a little bit, but in terms of the process of, you know, from start to finish, what are, what are, you, what are you dealing with typically? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that university presses do um, and that, that commercial presses, let's say commercial trade presses, putting aside the, the tales and Francis of the world, let's compare, you know, uh, HarperCollins to a WVU press. The, the biggest difference is peer review and board approval. So because these books go out, in part because these books go out with the university's name on the spine, um, it's, it's obviously in the best interest of the university to make sure that they are, that they reflect the very best kind of scholarship. And that's not just a question of fact-checking, but, but, but ensuring that these books are kind of, are with it, you know, that they are responding to the latest scholarship, that they, um, that they, that they are, are genuinely contributions to what's going on. That they're not outliers, that they're not, you know, disregarding, um, in the case of history, the, the relevant historiography, et cetera, et cetera. So the way that we ensure that, in addition to, you know, the editors of the press developing their own sense of it, which is important, is to put everything we publish to external peer review, uh, typically from uh, two reviewers who are specialists in the field. Uh, they generate input that the author uh, considers and may or may not uh, incorporate into revisions. And then once once there's a version of the manuscript that reflects input from outside specialists that everybody's you know fairly happy with, it goes to an editorial board, which is made up of uh, faculty at the university that the university press is attached to, mm -hmm. and that's the final step in peer review. So the board will um, will read the reviews. In some cases, they'll read the manuscript or a portion of it. They'll hear about the project from the sponsoring editor at the university press, and they will, in you know, if everything has gone smoothly, they will give it a thumbs up. And at that point, it, it can bear the imprimatur of the university because the university's faculty, represented by the board, have approved publication of the book. Right. At, a, at a commercial house, at a, at a trade house, that wouldn't, in most cases, be a step. It would be, would be more reliant on the input from your editor exclusively, um, often from the marketing and sort of publicity department at that press, mm -hmm. because those books are more expensive to publish, because the sales expectations are more robust in most cases than university presses. It's, it's generally the case that the marketing department is going to have more of a say in those things. The other element, if you're at a commercial house, would be most of those places will only consider your work if you have a literary agent. So you may be getting um, input and shaping of the project, uh, even at a sort of pre-submission stage, uh, from your agent. Um, so, so all those folks would be doing, some, with, with different um, criteria in mind, would be doing some of the work of providing input. Uh, that in a university press case comes in large part from uh, the peer review and editorial uh, board approval process. And when it comes to actually publishing the book, you know, it, at a commercial trade house, they're going to want most of their sales right off the bat. And they're going to want, you know, we can talk about backlist management if you want, but they're not, for the most part, looking at what's this going to do over 10 years. They're looking at what is this going to do in its first year when it's a frontlist book. And they're much more oriented because their print runs are larger. Uh, and they're more oriented towards selling stuff through retail, they're much more oriented towards um, publicity. So the big push will be, you know, can we get high-profile reviews from the, the Times and, and a couple of other places like that? They're going to be more likely to work with you um, and provide resources to send you on a book tour and that kind of thing. I mean, you know, the Yales and Oxfords among university presses will do, will do some of that too, um, but, but the 
if you, if you want the really, really big push that way, that's going to come from a commercial press. At a university press, the way it's published is typically more that it's that your book is kind of part of a cohort of similar books in scholarly areas that that press has decided are areas of, of strength and, and focus and specialization for them. So you're looking at things like roundup reviews in the relevant journals, uh, in the, the academic programs. You're looking for um, coverage at the exhibits in your field or your subfield. You're looking for a lot of um, emphasis on awards and prizes and that kind of thing. That's typically where the marketing resources at a university press are invested. So, so the actual the, the, the route of publication or the emphasis in terms of getting the word out about the book would be a little bit different at a university press as well. And with the idea, I think, that these ultimately will be adopted for courses and go into libraries and they'll sort of have a longer shelf life in some ways. Is that, is that sort of the thinking behind it? Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're all trying to sell some books, and this is worth sort of, um, depending on what uh, aspirations you have for your own book, it's worth considering when you're thinking about which publishers, even which university presses, uh, to submit your work to. I mean, we all try to get some of our books into, into retail, and that's a question of what discount is assigned to the book, and how it's priced, and what format it has, is it cloth or paperback, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the university presses are going to be more attentive to, as you said, things like course adoption, library sales, um, other ways to sort of get the book out, which are less focused on consumers, uh, conventional consumers. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's um, let's talk a little bit more about um, something that you brought up uh, a few minutes ago uh, in terms of the explosion in the recent past of uh, online and digital publishing and the ability to self-publish and self-distribute. So from your perspective, what, you know, sort of where are we at in the current state of publishing in this context, where you have sort of the competition between a, a more traditional print, uh, you know, print version of, of a book versus an online or a digital or self-published um, product? Sure. Um, I mean, I think we'll always be able to do things that, that the true self-publishing doesn't allow. I mean, we, we, the university press is a big part of our role in the, the sort of the academic um, Sphere is the credentialing that we provide when it comes to things like tenure and promotion. Um, having the imprimatur of the university is, is important to establishing uh, that one is sort of, uh, you know, that one is credible when it comes time to, to getting an academic job or being promoted in an academic job. But beyond that, I think that we are, we are we're doing peer review. We're helping to sort of impose a taxonomy on um, the flood of work that's out there. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so much work available. I think it, your work becomes more intelligible if it can be kind of placed um, among the, the deluge of work with the university press, you know, as part of a university press that has a strength in the field that you publish in, as, as, a, as a book that, you know, like I mentioned, is being advertised among similar books, is being sort of positioned by the publisher for consumers, but also just for sort of the academic world as being part of something larger than itself. I think that's a big part of what university presses do, in addition to the more conventional things like peer review, uh, design, uh, actual, you know, the, 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 the printing and, and, and marketing and so forth of it. Um, I think there's the part of that kind of community building or, or making discoverable among a community that publishers do that self-publishing doesn't. I think in terms of sort of ebooks and all that, we're kind of at a new normal. I mean, mm -hmm. I've been working in publishing for about 18 years, and there's always been a sense that, that university presses in particular are in crisis. Um, and I think it probably dates back much further than that. It probably dates back 50 years from the initial sort of decline in library 
purchasing of university press books, there's always been a ton of, of very public hand-wringing on the part of university presses sort of saying that it's all going to change, it's all changing, our business model's broken. Uh, you know, people were saying 15 years ago that within five years, everything would be digital, the print would die. Um, and that has very conspicuously not happened. I mean, I've always been a skeptic on it, and I've always been sort of surprised that there are people who are predicting you know, radical change and it didn't happen and nothing seemed to happen to those people whose predictions were inaccurate. But I think there are there are certain ways in which um, one is rewarded for making very dramatic proclamations. But there's been a surprising underlying continuity. I mean, sales have been a challenge, but very few university presses have actually gone under. I mean, I think there's sometimes a sense that uh, Part of the crisis is that you know we're losing university presses left and right. Since 2004, I looked it up this morning, uh, there are five university presses have closed out of 130 plus university presses that exist. And I think more university presses have actually opened since 2004 than have closed. So it's not it's not a reason for complacency. It's not a reason to reject innovation. But I think there is a kind of an underlying stability. Ebook sales would be another example of this. Um, you know, there for most university presses, ebooks are about seven, eight, nine percent of sales, and they have been for the last few years. And the studies I've seen suggest that that's sort of leveling off. So I don't think we're going to see a huge spike beyond that five to ten percent in, in ebook sales um, going forward. It's, a, it's contemplative reading tends to be a, a, a print creature. Uh, there, there's evidence that students prefer it for adoption. Even the even the textbook world has not gone digital in a huge way. And there's you know for those of us who are just reading to, to do serious reading, I think there are lots of reasons why we like to do it. Um, you know, free of distractions and quietly, and and able to take notes by hand in the margins and all that good stuff. That that has been a very resilient way of reading. And and I don't think we're going to see much more shift to to e. Now, in all this, there's the open access push. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a, a backgrounder on that and, and sure. talk a little bit about that? That would be great. I mean, so open access basically means that the end user isn't paying for the thing. Uh-huh. Um, so it's still it's still cost to make books, right? But if somehow that that the the cost of doing it is not borne by the end user through purchasing the, the book, but is provided some other way, and the book is made freely freely available in a digital edition. Um, to the end user. One thing to, to clarify here is that the vast, vast majority of costs that go into a book are not the printing itself. And this, I think, is sometimes confusing to, um, to folks who, who don't work in our industry. Um, I mean, they recently did a study on the true cost of publishing a monograph, including the overhead, which is really staff time, which is the biggest cost of all, mm-hmm. is somewhere in the $35,000 range, which is extraordinary if you think about it, right? And that's mostly sound. Um, I don't know, most of it, largely salaries. Um, so, so even if you're not printing the book, even if the book is only going to be available as an ebook, which is typically how open access works, um, you still have a ton of costs involved in producing the book. So the, the question becomes how, who is going to pay for that besides the end user? Now, so just a quick sort of potted history of open access. I think it really began in the journals world. It began, you know, with these scandalous examples you always hear about, um, not university presses, but commercial scholarly publishers doing these journals largely in STEM fields where a single issue costs, you know, $15,000 or whatever. So there's the issue of, of the cost of doing it. And there's also the issue of, of wanting people wanting it to be freely available because maybe libraries can't afford, um, you know, uh, 
subscriptions that are that costly. Maybe there are people without access to libraries, especially if these are you know if it's medicine or something. Sure. Well, in the developing world, who desperately need access to that to that information, um, but but don't have library access or can't afford it, or their library can't afford it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's that's part of how it sort of kicked in, and it and and it really has migrated slowly, but I would say um, in a way that sped up in the last two years even from thinking about uh, commercial scholarly publishers and their journals to thinking about university presses and their books. Um, the university presses don't tend to, to charge as much. We don't tend to be in those STEM fields. We're more book than journal oriented. So in a lot of ways, the, the, the original push behind it doesn't seem to extend to books from university presses in the same way. One, one consideration has been, you will hear from people you know, that the decision-making, despite what I said at the beginning of our conversation, the decision-making at university presses about what to publish is is too beholden to market forces. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons to consider moving to an open access model would be that, you, you know, there's the idea that the that our, our decision-making is distorted by um, financial considerations, but if you took financial considerations out of it, because, again, you wouldn't be thinking about sales because you'd be giving it away, then we would be truly publishing what's most, which what has most merit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know the, the the MLA Modern Language Association kind of uh, push a few years ago, ago around the crisis of scholarly communication feeds that. I think there it's definitely varies by field. I don't get as much sense of that from historians. You know, that there's a lot of good work that's going unpublished, in other words. But I think that's part of part of the push with OA. Um, you know, how does it actually get realized? I don't know. It's 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 a bigger deal in Europe, where it's often more often the case that it's a matter of policy, that the, the government is requiring, especially if you receive any public funding for your research, that the the, the fruits of the research needs to be made available for free. Right. Um, you see that you see that in the states sometimes around course books. I think the state of Florida, for example, passed the law that, that you know course books need to be in some free iteration. Uh, the other player here is uh, the Mellon Foundation in particular is very, very keen on promoting open access uh, in books from university presses. And they've got um, just just a year, two years ago, they launched um, a series of grants or sort of call for, for grant proposals designed to build an infrastructure for moving university presses to an open access model. And the basic, this this may have changed a little bit because it seems to be a, a quickly evolving sort of um, thread. But the, the basic idea was that the Mellon Foundation would make a bunch of money available to universities, which in turn would make um, chunks of money available to some of their faculty, who in turn would give that money to their publishers and then the publishers, having received whatever that let's say it's thirty-five thousand dollars, having received that thirty-five thousand dollars from uh, the author who they're going to publish, would use that to offset the cost of making the book, and then the book would be available free. Uh, so it's kind of a Rube Goldberg, and they, there are reasons why they chose to do it that way, as opposed to, for example, just giving the money straight to the publishers. It's kind of a Rube Goldberg-y um, series of maneuvers, but that eventually money would get two presses to offset the the loss in in revenue from sales. And that presses could make the stuff freely available, so anybody could read it. It could sort of ping around uh, digitally in ways that uh, the monographs currently don't. So that's been the push from Mellon. My, my sense is it's not entirely successful, and there's a lot of resistance to it, in part because I think people are pretty attached to, to reading in print. 
in part because sometimes I think these things strike people as sort of solutions in search of a problem. I mean, in, in part because it really does seem born of a particular experience of journals in the for-profit world and maybe doesn't align totally with, uh, with books in the not-for-profit world. But I think you'll start to see, you certainly are seeing some experimentation with open access on a project-by-project -project scale. And, and it may be the case that that takes off, but I think it's sort of at a, it's, it's at an interesting um, juncture right now. Right, and it sort of seems like sustainability is kind of the big, sure. big sticking point, right? Because you can get a chunk of money to do one book or a series of books, but then what happens after that? I think, and that and that's point. that's exactly the issue, and that's yeah. part of why the um, the Mellon plan, as I understand it, at least it was articulated a couple of years ago, was sort of elaborate. I think they were trying they were trying to get universities used to spending that money so that even when the, the Mellon funds eventually dried up, they would just have sort of inculcated this worldview on the part of universities where they were accustomed to subsidizing their faculties instead of that money, basically because now the cost comes from, in addition to, you know, what we recover from sales, uh, the money comes from those universities that have university presses and you get free riders among the universities that don't have university presses mm -hmm. that still require university press publication in order to tenure their faculty, even though they're not ponying up to support the system by having a subsidy for their own press, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, right. it is an imperfect system presently, um, but I don't know, I mean, for exactly the sustainability reason that you've identified, among others, I don't know that these sort of very big sweeping uh, examples of social engineering are really going to work out. Sort of along the same vein, let's talk a little bit about the, the financial realities for university presses these days. Maybe you could talk a little bit more specifically about what you touched on briefly in terms of how you manage lists in this context, um, how you strike a balance between general interest titles that might have a very broad readership and scholarly ones that might make an important important contribution to a field, but might not sell as many copies. How do you, you know, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I am personally, so, so there, at the very most basic level, two kinds of books, and it has to do with, I mentioned briefly earlier in the conversation, discount. Right. Um, if you give a deep discount to a book, what we call a trade discount, it means you're selling it to retailers at a deeper discount because you think retailers are more likely to, to buy the book. So those are the books that you think are going to sell more. They also have to be priced lower because, you know, you're, they're not, the bookstore is not going to take the book, whatever the discount, if it's a $75 hardcover book, right? So you got you got whatever number of books that are priced low, deeply discounted. The press doesn't make very much money from each individual sale, but the hope is you make up for it in the in the volume of sales. And then there's a the other type would be a scholarly book, a short discount book. It has um, typically has a higher price. Or is available in a split run with a paperback, you know, for course adoption out the gate. Uh, it, it has a, a, a shallower discount because there's less likelihood the publisher thinks of retailers taking it. And the the question has been, and there are sort of in between models and so forth. But the basic question has been, you know, do, how much trade should university presses be doing? How much is it financially feasible for them to do? How much does it help them versus maybe make their lives riskier because? Mm -hmm. It's harder because, again, you're making less money from each sale, and it's typically harder to gauge what sales will be on these splashier uh, trade discount books, whereas there's a kind of predictability to most monographs. Mm -hmm. I think the history of this is complicated, and there are university presses that had trade books, had cookbooks, for example, would be a, a good example of a trade category, had cookbooks that did really well even 50 and 75 years ago. But the overall trajectory, according to most people who pay attention to university presses, has been a move towards doing more trade books 
uh, in part to, as, a, as a gamble designed to help offset declining sales of, of conventional scholarly books. And I think it is incontrovertible that libraries, university libraries, are buying fewer um, scholarly books uh, than that, certainly than they were 50 years ago. And that's sort of, that was almost an indirect subsidy to university presses that has been declining because you can't count on selling 500 copies of, of mm -hmm. the libraries anymore. Maybe you can only count on selling a couple hundred. Um, I think a lot of university presses have erred on the side of doing too much uh, general interest, too much trade, uh, both from a financial standpoint and also from a mission standpoint. I think, um, you know, and it's almost, it, to me, sort of the, the biggest deal in university presses right now, sort of a bigger issue than than the rise of the digital, or um, you know the, the challenge of open access is: are we are we doing the right kind of books? Have too many? In my own experience, having been largely a sort of small and mid-sized public university presses with a strong sense of region, um, have we pivoted too much to being almost more like state historical society presses? Than conventional university presses? Are we too focused on our states? Sometimes I think not even for financial reasons, but for political reasons. One thing that struck me is, is the degree to which a university press may feel subtle political pressure to do books about their own backyard because they're, you know, they're easily understood by a large swatch of people who may have, you know, power over the press, of, of stakeholders to use the word that people use within the state who want to see, you know, not, not boosterish books, but not necessarily highly, you know, critical books either about the state where the university press is. So there are, there are folks in the administration, there are potential donors, et cetera, et cetera, who may be pushing um, a press to, to overinvest in stuff that's regional or even sub-regional. And I think that can have all sorts of, I mean, I, I think everybody's still got a ton of integrity, but I think that can just around in interesting ways. And one thing I've noticed, for example, over the course of my time in publishing is that a marketing department at a university press is less likely to, um, to send staff to conferences than they used to be. And, that, and, and being at a conference, having the acquiring editors, the people who actually decide what to publish and work with authors and their marketing colleagues at the same conference, I think is important just in terms of sort of instilling a sense of where academe is among a marketing department and enabling um, editors and marketers to have conversations where there's enough uh, shared understanding and experience that they can, they can communicate across the marketing uh, editorial divide. I think in the absence of sort of, if, if the marketers are mostly taking their cues, in other words, from people who are in the state and have a strong stake, have a strong sense of, of the importance of publishing for that state, but the editors are out in the wider academic world and have a sense of what scholars need, I think you can have a mismatch. And I think sometimes if the marketers who are prevailing and sort of um, seeing a press or making a press pivot towards burrowing down on stuff that's sort of in the backyard, as opposed to, frankly, stuff that the university itself may be good at. I think often it's, you know, a, a, a large public university is not primarily published, is not primarily generating scholarship on its own region. Its strengths may be global. Uh, in their scope, but that may be lost on folks who are more focused on, on the regional and sub-regional components of the list. So my overall sense is um, I understand on paper why it makes sense to try to do some, some blockbuster books, and I think there are political reasons, among others, 
why a university press needs to make sure that the people of the state that it's part of, if it's public, are happy with the list. But I think the balance is probably tipped a little bit too much towards that sort of thing. And I want to make sure that university presses are reminded of how important it is to actually be doing scholarship and to be doing scholarship in ways that, um, that reflect the true strengths of the university that they're part of. Let's narrow down just a little bit and talk more specifically about history publishing. What are the trends right now that you're seeing um, in history relative to other disciplines? Yeah, history is an interesting field in part because I think, you know, I, I talked about sort of the Modern Language Association crisis of scholarly communications report. I don't think there's been anything comparable on the history side, at least among U.S. historians, which is the, the part of the, the spectrum I'm most familiar with. I think presses have, for the most part, stayed in history. I think history is well published among university presses um, for a variety of reasons. I think it is, you know, it's a more narrative field. The writing tends to be more narrative than in other disciplines. I think many universities can point to their history department as being quite strong, at least among departments that are likely to yield books. So that's a reason for publishers to stick with it. I think, you know, one thing that's sort of inside baseball, but maybe of interest is that what a press publishes is contingent in part upon what editors it has. And it tends in many cases to be the same editors who are kind of circulating around from press to press. Many of us, myself included, have a history background and we may sort of just uh, um, reproduce socially that way as we move from press to press, bringing history lists with us. It's one reason why I think university presses have been reluctant to get out of history. Um, so for a variety of reasons, I think I think um, some of the stresses, and, and you may disagree, and, and people on the other end of it, authors, potential authors may disagree, but I think from a university press publisher standpoint, um, history has been more resilient, has been um, less likely to see publishers get out, um, and it's been a fairly robust field for, for university presses. Um, that said, I think a lot of presses... And this tacks back to my previous point. A lot of presses have scaled back how they're doing history. I think some presses are certainly doing it in a in a more trade, general interest way, in a less scholarly way than they used to, and they they may be doing it in a regional or sub-regional way as opposed to a global way. I mean, just at the most basic level, um, looking at who's going to which conferences, it used to be that every publisher that thought they had a history list um, or the you know self-proclaimed history publisher mm -hmm. would be not only at the regional conferences like SHA or their state historical association meeting, uh, but at OEH and AHA. Okay. Far fewer publishers going to OEH now, uh, even AHA, fewer publishers than used to be. Um, I think they are becoming more strategic about what they publish because history is an expensive field to publish in, in part because there are so many conferences. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it has... Uh, in ways that, as, you know, as I described, I'm not completely satisfied with, tended to mean that a lot of sort of smaller but historically vital university presses with a history publishing focus uh, are narrowing that focus to, to their own regions and maybe not publishing in the same global ways that would reflect the true strengths of, of the faculties at the university that they're attached to. I think the, the other thing, and this may be implicit in some of what I've said so far, is that the the Expectations around tenure and promotion as they're related to book publication do not seem to have shifted very much in history, in part because I think it is a little bit easier to get your history book published, I'm guessing. So there isn't as much of a, of a, a prompt to reconsider from that angle. Um, and it may just mean, it may mean that there's a little bit less of a conversation among historians about 
about whether you know requiring a book to get hired, requiring another book to get promoted, etc., is really the, the best way to go about it. Um, and it may also mean a slightly more conservative orientation towards what constitutes a book. I think there are some fields where I've worked in uh, the, the social sciences, for example, where there may be a little bit more innovation about you know writing books that are meant to be for courses, for example, even fairly early on in one's career, whereas there doesn't seem to be the, the, as much perceived need to think creatively about the sorts of books that historians are writing. They, they tend to be sort of straightforward monographs or mm -hmm. trade books. Mm -hmm. Or you might even see the same thing extend to um, multi-authored books, not, not edited collections, but sort of collaborations among historians, I think are a little bit, a little bit less likely to see that among historians than among people in other disciplines. Um, I think history tends to be more open to general interest publishing because it is narrative. On the flip side, publishers believe, whether accurately or not, that historians are less likely to buy each other's books than in some other fields. But a, there may be a slight, and in part, that's just that's a supply and demand. There is such such a deluge of history books coming out um, that it, it becomes impossible to, to buy them all. I think in part is because historians spend a lot of time in the archives, right? So they're reading primary documents as opposed to in a field that doesn't have something comparable where they can spend more of their time, more of their reading energy on, on secondary literature. Um, but I do think one thing I would say, since I have an audience here of historians is, you know, if you're on the fence about it, go ahead and, and buy your friend's book or, or, or buy the book that's, that's, that's out new that seems really interesting. I, I realize part of that is on us. We need to make them more affordable. You should reward publishers that are publishing books affordably. Um, but I think there is sometimes a sense of a kind, I, maybe this is unfair, but it scans as a lack of community sometimes from a publisher standpoint among historians. Whereas if we go to uh, AAA, the anthropology meeting, for example, um, everybody is sort of feeling compelled to buy one another's book. And, and there is, I, I don't know that it yields more sales overall, but in terms of the real-time experience of selling books at an exhibit, it can foster a greater degree of, of excitement and camaraderie. Within history publishing, beyond what you've been talking about um, in terms of some presses tracking more towards local or state or you know a, a, a narrow regional focus, are there any new areas of note that you're seeing coming to the fore or maybe old areas, um, old subject areas that are seeing a resurgence right now? Yeah, I mean, I love paying attention to what the emerging areas seem to be. I'm probably not as good at it as I once was, just because um, I'm, I'm duller than I used to be. But, but I think I think it's that's what's fascinating about being an acquisitions editor for me. It's just it's watching um, where the energy seems to be. I mean, one thing that's always struck me. I mean, again, I've been doing it whatever it's been about 18 years, and it seemed like all the books for a long time would kind of end in 1968 or 1972. Uh, you know, and there'd be maybe an afterward that talked a little bit about what happens after, after the conventional civil rights movement or after, um, you know, the, the, the anti-Vietnam protests or whatever, but the sort of cataclysmic events of the late 60s and then it kind of dribbles off. I mean, as the, the post-1970 period grows longer and becomes fair game for uh, historians in, in more of a way than it used to be, I found it really interesting to watch the historiography develop for that, that period of 50 years or whatever it is now. And, you know, I think it started with with the, all those new right books that were so interesting a few years ago, but is now branching out into new sorts of things. Uh, it's not just that there's new subject matter available, in other words, but that they're sort of, they're, they're trying to, people are, are, are grasping towards a new chronology or a new taxonomy to sort of impose order and, and understanding and interpretive um, meaning on what's now a fairly uh, substantial historic, historical period. 
So I've always thought that that's interesting, and there seems to be a lot of energy around it, just flipping through the new OAH catalog, for example, uh, or program, rather. Um, so I think I think there's interest there. You know, so I, I saw an editor at another press give a presentation at one of the conferences a few years ago, and, and she was saying, you know, relevance, 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 with the feeling at that point anyway that, that historians maybe weren't as attentive to the relevance of their work as they might be. And, you know, there's always been the sense that you're not supposed to be presentist, right? Um, and, and I buy that. I think, But I think relevance, you, you, can, you can be non-presentist and still relevant. I mean, in pointing out the way that things don't need to have ended up the way that they did, in pointing to other historical possibilities, the contingent quality of how things ended up the way they are, I think you can engage uh, very explicitly and, and politically the, the current state of affairs. And I think historians are getting a little bit better at that in ways that are, that are really useful. So I think the, the new history of capitalism is an example of that, and that's certainly a field that interests me. I think environmental history is an example of that. Um, and obviously a growing field. I mean, environmental history is, is, is insane. If you go to that conference, there are a couple of hundred people there and typically 20, 25 publishers. So, so the, the, from our standpoint, the publisher standpoint, the odds aren't very good because the, the ratio is kind of skewed uh, against us. But I think if you're, if you're a scholar hoping to attract attention from publishers, on the other hand, it's a very good field for you because I, mean, I think a lot of us feel the obligation to be in it because it's a field that strikes us as being so important. You know, a field that I don't particularly engage with uh, personally or professionally, but that does seem to be growing is military history. Um, you know, often incorporating, obviously, uh, perspectives from gender, sexuality, race, uh, culture, social historians' work, all of that. I mean, it's not just sort of left flank history anymore. But I think there is a perception that maybe military history had been um, overlooked or that the wars themselves, as, as broad historical phenomena, uh, deserve investigating in a way that maybe they hadn't been so much before. So I think SMH is another conference where lots of publishers are going, maybe that didn't used to go. Public history is of interest to me. I mean, this is this is one where it is actually a growing field, right? You're seeing uh, a lot of universities are hiring people. Um, and obviously, there, there, there's a growth of, of, of people working in it outside of university contexts as well. It hasn't lent itself immediately to books necessarily in the same way that a lot of other historical Subdisciplines have or do, but I think there are definitely book opportunities there. I think there are teaching opportunities there, uh, and I don't think it's sort of a field that any one publisher has already claimed. So that's that seems to be an interesting and growing field. You know, the transnational stuff, the Atlantic stuff, I think has almost become kind of mainstream. Um, I think people sort of just expect that at this point. One thing that that has that I think became really unpopular that I keep waiting to see come back is cultural history, and that may be another case where it's just become so mainstream that people don't need to think of it that way anymore. But I feel like the valence of the of the phrase has sort of switched in a, in a slightly critical way, um, and I, I I wait for that to get rehabilitated, and, and maybe it will, maybe it won't. But that's sort of if I were to predict something that might come back in the next ten years. Uh, I would keep an eye on cultural history as well. What what can we be looking forward to from West Virginia University Press in the near future? Any any particular titles that listeners might be interested in, um, Southern labor studies related and so forth? Yeah, labor obviously has been a big part of the experience of this part of the world, and we have the the Phones Wolfses on, on our faculty who are, who are great. I mean, what I'm really trying to do at West Virginia, and I guess it won't be surprising based on some of what I've said previously in this conversation, is put the experience of Appalachia into dialogue with, with global phenomena. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's enough stuff that's specifically Appalachian history-focused 
to go around when there are good players at, at Kentucky and North Carolina and elsewhere, Ohio already doing that. But I think if we can if we can look at the experience of Appalachia and look at, at how it, it uh, complements the experience of other parts of the world, we're doing that in a few ways. We have a new series called um, Histories of Capitalism and the Environment, which is edited by a guy named Bart Elmore at the University of Alabama, who has a book out on sort of the environmental history of Coca-Cola. Uh, but I think that will hopefully draw on, on the experience of uh, certainly people who are interested in, in labor, but also more generally people who are interested in, in engaged history and history with, with a point of view, with, with a sense of the political stakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very much want our list to, to reflect that. And I think labor historians have always been particularly good at that. I think another thing labor historians have been good at is sort of drawing on other disciplines, the social sciences especially. And that's another thing I'd like to do. I'd like to have a, a list that has, that has history in it, but in an interdisciplinary way. Another new series we've started that strives to do that is on um, energy studies. Uh, it's edited by a guy named Brian Black, who's a historian at Penn State. But to think about issues of energy from a multidisciplinary perspective, and I think there would certainly be a labor component to that as well. I should point out we are also doing things with open access. As I mentioned before, we have a new open access textbook specifically on West Virginia history, which is available. Just Google it. It's called uh, West Virginia History and Open Access Reader. Uh, Ken Fonswolf, who I mentioned before, is one of the editors on it. So we are certainly dabbling with uh, some of the more innovative ways of presenting new information as well. Thank you so much for this fat-packed episode of <laughs> sort of a primer of academic publishing. It's been, it's been very informative. Derek Krisoff, thank you for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again to Derek Krisoff, director of the West Virginia University Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. History.